Hey everybody, it is episode 62 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is with me. Hey Steve. Hello, podcast world. We are, as always, super excited to be coming at you again this week. Our topic today is going to be athlete responsibilities. So whether you're self-coached or whether you're coached, we believe that it's important for each athlete to take ownership of their training in a holistic fashion. And so we're going to talk about what that means, how to take full ownership of your training, whether you're self-coached or whether you're coached, and talk about all the compi- all the pieces you need to be thinking about to take full ownership. We're going to put a little bit of pressure on them, right? A little bit. A little bit of pressure. We're going to try not to put too much. Yeah. <laughs> but as Steve and I were talking before, the athlete, you, are the only person that has all the information about what's going on in your training world. No one else does, not even your coach. So it's important for you to take full ownership of the process. And we'll talk about what that means today. Of course, we've got intro topics, as always, that we'll start with here. And there's a lot in the running news. It's there kind is. Of, it's kind of exciting. And we're so not even going to get to all of it. We're not even going to get to all of it. We had to pick and choose. But we've got a lot to talk about in the running world as indoors picks up and as the marathon season, spring marathon season begins with Tokyo coming up. So we're going to start with an, a must-read article that was actually published on deadspin.com, written by Sarah Barker, basically a Q&A with Jake Robertson, who just recently won the Houston half in just over an hour time there, beating a really deep field. And if anybody watched him dance at the finish line, <laughs> you knew that he was super excited because it's been a lot of work to get to that point of having a result he could hang his hat on. And so we wanted to point you to the article. It's a really fascinating story about Jake and his twin brother, Zane Robertson, who came from New Zealand, decided to move away from home at 18 years old. A plan, as it articulates in the article, that they hatched in their basement (laughs) of their parents' home and got a round-trip ticket from their parents to fly to Kenya and basically try to invest in their future as athletes had already had some success at the junior level at world cross and were pretty fast athletes, but they wanted to take it to another level. And so basically they took basically, you know, a suitcase full of clothes and moved to Kenya. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and because they wanted to train with the not best just of the world. for a couple of months or yeah. not a couple of weeks for a high altitude training stint. But as they said, forever if yeah. need be yeah i mean they, their parents bought them a round trip ticket and basically they said look we didn't plan to use the round other <laughs> end of the round trip our parents didn't know that but we kept pushing it back until it finally expired <laughs> and they just stayed there and it's a really fascinating article as you mentioned steve in our prep and pump here about the austin marathon at rogue last friday hungry dogs run faster and they were clearly hungry and put themselves in a position where they had essentially nothing in kenya didn't even initially have a place to stay, but were committed to training with the best in the world, and now they are. But it was a big up-and-down journey to get there. You know, Chris, I've known about this story from a cursory level just because these two guys have been banging it out for 10 years now just at the elite level, but pretty much not what we would call U.S. sub-elite, but definitely sub-elite when you consider how great the Kenyan and Ethiopian athletes are and how deep distance running is in the U.S. I mean, in the world, you know, they're just blips. But um, 
it was they were a compelling story because they'd spent so much time in Kenya. But it took this Deadspin article, which, by the way, was written by Sarah Barker, who um, this stuff is this is interesting stuff for our listeners. But really, this is one of the best pieces of running writing I've read in the last 10 years. It's really, really good. Well written, does a great job of telling their story. And, you know, it's it's interviews, but she asked just the right questions in just the right way, which sometimes an interview sometimes can just be done so wrong. I cannot recommend this higher to our listeners to read, especially those of you who are really into our first portion of of this podcast where you're becoming fans. Um, I was a fan of both uh, Zane and Jake, but now I am a huge fan of theirs. I really think that uh, this story makes them... They don't come off as uh, super nice guys, do they? Well, especially Jake, who does most of the interviewing here. But they do come across as um, as just driven, focused, and you know, as we talk about on this podcast all the time, Chris, that's what it takes to get to the next level. I'm just happy to see them getting there, and um, and it's just really compelling the kinds of challenges these guys have had, um, shifting from coach to coach to coach because they had to. Um, I did yeah. love that little toss out about saying that the sub the sub two, which is not the not the thing that. Uh, not, uh, Nike, Nike, not the right. Nikes breaking too, but the sub two thing that's being done by the Ethiopian crew uh, was a bunch of bullshit. I think is what he said explicitly. Yep. But um, it was really fascinating read. Highly recommended to everybody. And um, your 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 time is well spent. Yeah, they were eighteen when they moved. They're both so it's two thousand in two thousand seven. So they're either twenty eight or twenty nine now, and just now having world-class results with Jake's result, getting a PR in Houston for the win. And and Zane has already been under sub under 60 training with, interestingly, they're training in different places now, Ethiopia and Kenya, but crazy stories. I mean, at one point they talked about how the initial group that they started training with in Kenya was sort of a B-level group, and they were robbing them blind, basically one <laughs> article of clothing at a time. It's at one point... He said we were down to basically one set of training clothes and a pair of shoes. And they had taken my iPod, all my other stuff, pulled you know shirts off of clotheslines that, that we had been wearing. So anyway, they basically were, were down to nothing at one point and now are, are doing, doing pretty well and have you know established places in reputable training groups in those two countries. They also mentioned at one point that they got typhoid or something from drinking <laughs> bad water. and Thought they were going to die. Thought they were going to die. Literally said this to each other like, well, if, if I don't wake up tomorrow, you know, looking at each other, that, you know, you should go on and continue to dream. <laughs> <laughs> even if, if one of us doesn't make the night because they were so sick. So anyway, Ballsy. crazy story. Yeah. We ask the question of our listeners often on the show, how bad do you want it? Yeah. Well, the answer for Jake and Zane is a whole really, hell of a really lot. bad. <laughs> and, you know, Chris, I think. Both of them have been on Olympic teams for New Zealand. So it's not like they haven't run at the highest level. They just have not. It just took them a long time to get to be that good. But they're really good now. Um, I mean, Jake and Zane are two, I would think, especially the way Jake rates at Houston, really interested to see their next marathons and what they what they pull off. It also gives you interesting insight into the, the training culture in Kenya and what it takes to be the best in that world. So check it out. We'll link to it in our show notes. Highly recommend the article on Jake and Zane Robertson from Deadspin. 
Next, Steve, we got to get to some recent results, a couple that we have to cover off on. First of all, Sam Worley, we've mentioned as the UT freshman phenom, had a couple of big results in cross country as as he had his first semester at UT last year at the University of Texas and then just had a big result over the weekend breaking the mile indoor record, UT mile indoor record which for the UT men is a big deal. Yeah, Leo Manzano. Leo Manzano being <laughs> one huge <laughs> alum from the program and many, many others, especially from Leo's day with Darren, the Darren Browns of the world and so forth. Yep. So big result for Sam as a freshman to go break the UT indoor mile record. What do you think this means about his future? I mean, his future, we said, I, I remember I was telling somebody this recently, I remember watching him when he was a freshman or a sophomore at the Texas Relays and l- leaning over to John Hayes, who was the men's coach at the time, and saying, I think you need to recruit that guy. This guy's going to be really, really good <laughs> as a sophomore because he was just so powerfully built and seemed so calm, cool, and collected. Great mechanics. Definitely knows how to find a finish line. He, is, he knows how to race. Um, this was um, a surprise, though, to me. I did not expect him to come out of the box quite so hot, especially with, with some rumors about whether he was injured. He didn't run in the in the NCAA championship cross country race that was um, at the in the middle of November, end of middle of November. So it, this is a great result from him. You know, not too far f- past, and you know his teammate Alex. Um, I can't remember his name right now, but he, his teammate ran four flat. Even for Alex Rogers, Alex Rogers, four oh oh point oh oh. And he was in the second heat, the slower heat, and he won that heat. So we Texas almost had two guys go sub four in the same race if he had been able to get into that first into that into that faster heat. But Sam Worley is going is already really good and he's going to be very, very good. The one caveat, though, is. He was the second freshman in the race. <laughs> yeah, fourth, <laughs> he was fourth, fourth overall in the race. and second freshman in the race. So the the uh, Oregon went one two, and one of those freshmen is a great is a phenom uh, at Oregon. So Sam will continue to have great competition. But um, the race that they ran this at, Chris, it's a three hundred meter track, flat track. It's a really fast race in Washington uh, at at the uh, University of Washington in Seattle, and um, it's notorious for great great fields. Um, and very fast times. So it, but still, 3:58 is screaming fast at this time of the year, and I'm really excited to see what plays forward. Uh, they'll have their conference championship coming up pretty soon. Expect Sam to probably double and do very well in that. And uh, the future is very, very bright. Um, it's just it, it remains to be seen what his event will be because he's got a skill set. He's probably going to be a 1500 meter runner, but I'll be very interested to see if they move him down towards the 8 end or up towards the 5K range. Um, I'm sure that they will, Brad Herbster will f- has already already knows which direction they'll go because of looking at his mechanics and looking at how his workouts went. But really interesting to see what it, where it goes from here. It was great performance and super exciting for UT fans. Yep. Longhorn fans, watch out for Sam Worley. Big results for sure coming from him. Also from this past weekend, We've got to introduce our podcast audience to the name Edward Chesarek. King, King Chez. King Chez, as his nickname goes. He's a seven-time, 17-time, <laughs> 17, let me say that again, 17-time NCAA champion. Didn't finish his college career because of injury, at least the way he wanted to, but is now back healthy and training under the Skechers banner as a sponsored elite athlete. 
and had just a ridiculous double this past weekend, back-to-back nights. On night one at, at Boston University, he ran a 349-mile, second-fastest ever in the history of indoor miles, behind only the greatest Hitcher <laughs> Garouche, who has the world record indoor and outdoor. So second-fastest mile ever indoor. And then the next night ran a 738 3K to win at the New Balance Indoor, ga- indoor Grand Prix. And closed in a 27 mid-final lap there. So And wasn't even expected to run the 3K. Sort of made the decision on the spur and says, sure, I'll go get another, wor- I'll go get another workout in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable what he did on that day. And he called his shot, too, Chris. I mean, he had mentioned they, it was all over the He wanted the to web. break 350. He wanted to go under 350, so he called it out. And then he went out and did it and just... You know, his mile was incredibly impressive, but his 3K may have been even more impressive because the athlete that he beat is the last year's world champion in the, or the last time we had an indoor championship, so world champion yep. in the 1500, who from Ethiopia, Gebrewet, it was no slouch at all, and he jetted away from him, put something like three, three seconds, seconds, three seconds on him <laughs> three in, seconds. in the final 200 meters, which is, I mean, if you saw that, it's like, and it, it's like a like a like a man running with babies. Like he's <laughs> like just it's it's not even to be believed. I, I, I wish I, people I, could see it. I, I, I kind of want I want to try to go to see it, but they've got all these barriers up. You have to be this person. You have to be on Flow Track, or you have to be on USATF TV or whatever to to watch it. I'm not there quite yet, but behind too many paywalls. Yes, but it's still amazing, amazing stuff. And believe me, folks, we will all be talking about King Ches for a long, long time. One question now, Chris, is who does he compete for? Yep. Because he's not, he's currently a Kenyan. Kenyan born, moved to the U.S. in high school. Right, just like Meb Kaflaski. Yep. And, um, you know, a very similar scenario as Meb, um, but Meb was not this good this fast and that good this soon. It is a coup, a, a coup for Skechers to have an athlete of this caliber and this, this tech, of this, this caliber, and um, you know, he's also being coached by someone who's never really coached before, Stephen Haas, who's been known as an agent. I'm not sure if it's true that he's never coached, but he's not been a known coach. Um, they're based in Flagstaff, and so it's a really interesting arrangement they have, and uh, it'll be really fun to see over the coming years what happens. Uh, hopefully, I think Edward is the kind of guy who should be an American because of the time that he spent here. Um, we'll see whether or not in our current political landscape that becomes <laughs> well tenable, he says he says he wants to ultimately he, race as a u.s athlete he believes yes. or he identifies that way because he came here in high school he says he doesn't want to race for kenya so but it does mean apparently the the naturalization process for him looks to be a two to three year road which puts him beyond the 2020 olympics potentially so can you can you stand to not be competing under a flag for that long? I'm not sure. Maybe, well, also, maybe if you Chris, keep, keep running this fast, it doesn't matter. The Kenyans are notorious for not wanting athletes that train in the United States and live in the United States. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I think I don't think he can train. I don't think they'll take him. Right, and he can't run with us yet. So, right. you know, but can I he? I have an idea. What can he do? Join the U.S. Army group. <laughs> Scott Simmons. <laughs> I mean, Scott Simmons. There's might an answer be able to, to the, There's an him. answer to that question. <laughs> it's actually not a bad idea, because <laughs> we know King Ches won't be on the front line anytime soon. Given, that is given true. the times he's put uh, up. I mean, people, 3:49 is stupidly, ridiculous. ridiculously fast. Ridiculous. I do have one thing to say though. You know, Hisham El got on the Twitter space and said, "Hey, 
Edward, congratulations to King Ches, but you, my advice is to focus only on the 1500 or the mile. That is not good advice. Bad advice. Bad advice, <laughs> in my opinion. I don't think anybody's really looking to Hisham El Garouche for training and life advice. <laughs> but um, Chez is going. If he can I do mean, what he's done in the in the mile at this level, I can. He is a five k runner, and he should stay fifteen five all the way. He'll be, you know, Bernard Lagat. We won't even be talking about Bernard Lagat because of the kind of talent that this guy has. It is. It is extraordinary talent. Yeah, and he's young. And by the way, Hisham El Garouge, you didn't focus on the 15. You you worked all the way up and down, too. True. And, you know, <laughs> so also... Doesn't make sense. Cesarek is not built like a lot of these other, uh, both Kenyan and, and and the best in the world. He's shorter, stockier, a little less fluid. Um, but the man can scoot, and he is the future of distance running any way you look at it. Yes, and hopefully we can fast-track him to be an American by 2020. So now let's talk future results. We've got a, some predictions to make, and there's too many to really go through, but we're going to at least stick our toe in it. This this weekend, we're recording this on a Thursday. This weekend before this releases is USA Indoors. So we've got to make some predictions there and cover off on some of those races. And as you listen to this, you can go back and look at us indoor results. And obviously we're not going to do a full preview as I just described, but there's some major, major races happening. And so we're going to preview a couple of them and give some thoughts and predictions so that you can look back and see, you know, how we did the first, we'll talk on the men's side, Steve, we have, you know, and it's interesting because this isn't, a outdoor major championship year no olympics no world championships that you have some folks competing at usa indoors that might not have competed otherwise because they would have been saving themselves for outdoors because you do have an indoor world champs coming up so as a result some of these fields are really fascinating the men's 800 being one of them break it down for us so in the men's eight we've got this has been an incredible year for the 800 um around the world but especially for the u.s we already have two athletes under 146 this year. Um, came out of the same race. Um, we've got Donovan Brazier, who's run 145.11. Um, and he ran 145 back-to-back weeks, Chris, like two weeks in a row. 145 is extremely fast indoors. It, it, the 800 is a little bit of a tricky race on on the indoor boards. <clears throat> it's just... It's usually not... It's not anywhere near as fast because of the, because of the banks and the way that it plays out. And uh, so we've got Donovan Brazier, um, U.S. Two, second, to- second in the U.S. all time in the eight indoors. Uh, we've got Drew Windle, who made our world championship team, was a surprise last year when he made the world championship team, acquitted himself admirably at the world championships, I believe. And he's already gone under 145 in the same race that Donovan did. Um, he's run the third fastest time ever U.S. indoors, which is really crazy. Um, we've got Eric Sawinski who has been, I think he's won the U.S. Championships indoors three different times indoors. And um, he was third at the World Indoor Championships. Um, and so he's, you know, he's a force to be reckoned with. He's he's very good indoors and, indoors and out, Chris, but we know, we've, we, you and I both have picked him at times when we've made prediction contests and he hasn't always come through with us outdoors, but indoors, he always seems to be sharp, ready to go. And it's his, his racing style. Um, we've also got Clayton Murphy, 
most of our listeners will know that name, the Olympic bronze medalist, who seems to be, um, you know, coming back from that sort of bad 2000. Uh, he's sort of rounding into shape at this point in time. Not quite sure where he is. He hasn't really raced that much. He ran um, a mile, I believe, recently and ra- finally got a good a good time. But Clayton Murphy, as we know, he's hard to bet against. He always seems to find a finish line pretty well. And he's been known in his years when he ran at Akron, he was dominant in the eight at the collegiate level. Um, and again, did I mention he's the Olympic bronze medalist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's that too. And then there's a dude I've never heard of ever. His name's Samuel Ellis, and he runs for BAA. Um, this dude ran a PR last week of one second, which our listeners who are mostly marathoners and distance runners don't really know what a second is in 800, but it's huge. For someone to PR by a second in a race like that, it is crazy. I'm not going to pick Samuel Ellison for anything too far because sometimes things just happen. But that's our field, and that's not even talking about we've got Leo Manzano in the race. Um, we've got Iliad Ruda. We've got a ton of runners. Kaz Loxham. Kaz Loxham, who's not had a great year this year. But um, it's going to be an incredible field. And I can guarantee you, one thing that we now know, Chris, is, well, what I believe is Donovan Brazier is not going to run stupid this time. He's learned his lessons, it seems like. You may beg to differ with me, but I think he's going to take this one out. I think he's going to lead it. And I think he's going to stay away the entire race. Um, the only person I think that can really get him would be Murphy, although Swinsky does also like to take a lead. So it could be that Swinsky takes the lead early. I'm not sure exactly. It'd be who, how the break happens off the first turn and who gets into position. But I'm picking Donovan Brazier in this thing. I think he's going to win it, whether he has to lead from the front or whether he comes from the behind. Either way, he's going to take the race. And I'm going to pick Clayton Murphy for second. And then I'm going to go with a little bit of a surprise. I'm going to go with Drew Windle for third. I think he's ready for a big breakout race. He probably should be slotted in second, but I just think Clayton Murphy is going to be too much. What do you think, Chris? So, well, first of all, I want to plug that it's going to be interesting to see how Brazier handles favorite status. Yes. I mean, he's he's had it before, but we know that's kind of messed him up. And in the world, you know, he did he handled his business at USA Outdoors last year, but didn't really at the World Champs. No, he did not. So we've kind of seen that up and down. But I tend to think that he actually has more margin for error in indoors than he does outdoors mm-hmm. because of the tightness, especially in an eight, of getting around people when things get crazy. I like your list. Sort of. I'm going to agree with you on two of the three at least in terms of names i like brazier to win as well i think he gets it done i think the fact that it's indoors helps him in this case i'm going wendell for two because i think he'll be maybe the smartest in the race yeah i'm going head i'm going heart with clayton you're going head with yeah exactly i'm going head with wendell and i'm i'm not convinced that murphy is in 800 fitness he hasn't been sharp so Mm -hmm. i'm actually going swinsky for the third cool because of his indoor experience, he always seems to show up indoor. So that's my; those are my picks: Brazier, Wendell, Sawinski, and by the way, top two make the world champs if they have the world standard. And only four of these guys have the world standard. So unless it's a fast race, it's a fairly tight list of those who can make it between Brazier, Wendell, Ellison, and Murphy. But that's something to go back now as you're listening and check it out. Did we get it right? 
The one person missing from this field for sure is Boris Berrien, who we would love to have seen, but he just was not. He got injured last year. He has not come back quick enough. He raced last weekend, kind of got his butt kicked, and so he said, I'm out, which is really smart. I'm Nice to see a wise man when knows when not to get beat. <laughs> yes. So now let's switch to the women's side. Pick, we're going to pick one race to kind of preview and predict there, and that one in this case turns out to be the women's 1500. Yeah, this one's really interesting, pretty, Chris. Pretty damn stacked as well, including a trio of Bowerman Track Club ladies. They call themselves the Bowerman Babes, so <laughs> that's not me That's not me being a misogynist. No, I, I, I wonder it's if it's Let's Run who called them that or if they call themselves that. They call you themselves know? that. Wow. I mean, when you, when you look at all of them on social media, that's what they say. But anyway, Colleen Quigley, Kate Grace, Shelby Houlihan are all in this one, and... I think the question becomes, can they sweep? And who's going who's gonna to compete to break up that sweep? So how do you break this one down? Well, this one is, um, so this one, will we, we should run on the favorite since you just sort of lined it up that way. We <laughs> should talk Kate Grace as, um, you know, she made Worlds, she made the Olympics. Um, she just recently ran second at the Wanamaker Mile just got nipped at did not have enough room to catch Colleen Quigley um, and did not get and got beat by her in the uh, at, at the Wanamaker mile um, but you know Kate Grace is for sure I think for most people everybody's going to consider her sort of the favorite even though she got beat by Colleen Quigley we have Colleen Quigley who's a steeplechaser by trade but has shown this year incredible speed and wheels we've heard rumors that she's Really closing fast workouts out up there in Portland with Jerry. Um, again, they ran, she and Kate both ran 430, pretty much right on the nose. Um, and they, uh, so there's your, those two are sort of outstanding. And then there's Shelby Houlihan, who you mentioned, who, you know, normally, you know, you would just, you would say, okay, Kate Grace versus Shelby Houlihan, who's going to win in a, in, a, in, a, in a 1,500 against the two? Most people are going to lean towards Kate Grace, I think. But Shelby has run very fast this year, both at the mile and at the 3K. And I think Shelby is going to be extremely hungry. She's ready for more for her coming out party than ever. And I think she's going to be a force to be reckoned with and be very difficult to beat. But there's a couple other folks we got to talk about because – there's three other ladies who have run this year three seconds faster than all three of the people we just talked about. One, Rachel Schneider, who none of you have ever heard of, um, probably. She ran at Georgetown University. She's having a fantastic year this year. She's coached by the coach at NAU, who used to be her coach at, at Georgetown. She ran 127.30, um, and she just she's just looking really, really strong. Um, she doesn't have the experience at this level, um, and but she is an altitude-trained athlete who has been staying at altitude for most of her work. So, again, I don't know if we talked about this, Chris, but this, these, these races are happening in Albuquerque, which is at about 5,000 feet. So there will be a serious altitude issue for these athletes. So those ones who train and race and are accustomed to racing at altitude will have an advantage. So Rachel has a real good shot there. There's two others, Shannon Osaika, who ran at Michigan, who ran 427 this year as well. And Corey McGee, who ran um, at Florida, who has run 427. Um, again, there's just so many women in this race. But the way I break it down, Chris, I think the race is going to happen. It doesn't matter exactly what happens. If Shelby Houlihan races, because she's going to run the yeah, 3K the night before. She's doubling back. But if she races, 
Are they going to win it? She ran, she closed in 28 seconds in the end of a fast 3K and destroyed the field. Almost as fast as King Chess. That's that <laughs> that those wheels are very hard to beat indoors when races except when you can accelerate off a turn like that in that kind of a manner. I'm just not sure that Colleen or Kate or Rachel or anybody is going to be able to handle those wheels. So I'm going to go with Shelby for the win. Of course, there's a little asterisk beside it because I have to say she might not run, and if she doesn't, that hurts. So, but I'm still picking her for the win. And then I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick Colleen Quigley for second. I think that she won, even though that race looked closer at the Wanamaker Mile. There was more there. She 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 could have stayed away further if she had judged things right. And I can't believe I'm I'm not saying that Kate is going to get it. But I'm going to give it to Colleen, but I am going to call it a, a Bowerman sweep, and I'm going to get Kate in the third position. So I'm pretty sure you and I are going to disagree on this wow. one. Wow. Let's see. So I'm That's going. Bold. I'm putting. I'm putting. Uh, going first with Houlihan, second with Quigley, and third with Kate Grace. Well, interesting. My gut tells me Houlihan won't be on the start line for this one because I think she's going to win the 3K and not double back. So I'm, I'm, my assumption is that Houlihan's not in this race after she qualifies for Worlds in the 3K and then Jerry says, hey, sit this one out so we can give Colleen and Kate a chance. Of the, the remaining athletes, it's really difficult to pick. You know, my heart tells me Kate Grace because I think she has probably the greatest potential in this group, but might still be a little discombobulated from joining a new training group right. and not on her peak. And she showed tactically that she has some work to do on indoor tracks and in the 1500 Generally, at yes. Tactics. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't sharp there and I think has some work to do. Colleen looks so smooth, but I also think for her that was partially because that, that race before was a freebie in a sense. Yeah. Where now she has some real pressure. So how will she respond? I don't know, but uh, this one's tough. And then I think Rachel and, and Corey McGee, I think both could be in the mix. So I think it's going to be a fascinating race. I'm going to go with Kate figuring it out and her 800 meter wheels, getting her the win. I'm going to say Rachel Snyder gets second and Colleen rounds out the top three. You know, I really would love to give Rachel Schneider the lean here, but I just don't think she. I just don't think she's got enough experience at this level. If she pulls this off, we're going to be talking about her to make a world, to make a, a world and Olympic team. And this is a kid who, who nobody's ever talked about in perhaps our very best event. Now we're missing some key people here, aren't we? We're missing Jenny. Yep. We're missing Brenda. You know, though Brenda may be moving up, but we know she's moving away from the eight for sure, right? Yep. So, um, they're key folks who we won't see. Um, but anyway, it's just th these two races, the men's eight and the women's 15 should be very, very exciting races. Shout out to, uh, super interested to watch the three K. I think in the three K we're going to see on the women's side, especially we're going to see Marielle Hall, who, uh, former Texas athlete, super excited to see if she can't make a world team again, but I don't think she's going to be able to beat her teammate. I think Shelby's just too hot right now. She is moving too fast. Yeah, so as you listen to this, go back and check those results. See how we did on the men's 8 and women's 15 and check the other results so we know who's going to the world's indoor in track and field. So last thing, we've got to preview quickly because we're running short on intro time. 
is the Tokyo Marathon. As you're listening to this, if it's a Monday or a Tuesday, coming up on February 25th, this coming Sunday, is the Tokyo Marathon. We've teased it a little bit, talking about how Amy Hastings Craig will be in the field and wanted to give at least some proper predictions on how this is going to play out. We're not going to break down the full fields because we think we want to simplify it and focus on the key players. But we did want to talk about it and make sure that you guys are looking out for these results. It'll be happening sometime overnight <laughs> for us. So, But I'm sure you can check the streaming out if you look for it or find a replay or look up the results. But I'll start on the women's side with this one. You know, we mentioned this as an opportunity for Amy Hastings Craig to get a fast race. She has a 227 PR, which doesn't quite isn't quite representative of the results that she's put forward and is very much slower than her competitors when it comes now to US even US marathoners with Elaine sorry, with Shalane having run low two twenties, Desi having run low two twenties, Jordan having run low two twenties. So if if Amy's gonna compete in the US trials for twenty twenty, then she needs a faster PR. And they've explicitly said this race is about that. Fast course with a solid field. And she's up against a group of five East African women in this race, led by Ruti Aga, that have all run 220 and 221 with her PR at 227. So that's six minutes slower than the five best women. At least six minutes slower than the five best women in this race. As I look at it, though, Steve, I think she can win it. and. Wow. That's wow. that's what I want fans to be looking out for. But I think she can win it. If you look at those East Africans in the field, yes, they have faster PRs, but a lot of their big results are a little bit dated. So this is a group of East Africans that don't necessarily have really, really recent low 220 times. And their best results coming from Berlin in 2016 from a couple of them. So I think Amy has a shot. I think if she's been kind of training in the vein of Shalane, then she probably is in the fitness to run low 220s. She's going to go for it, I would imagine. She's going to be with the lead group. We've seen the fact that she's mentally strong given her world championship bronze from last summer. And so I think and predict that Amy hastings Craig is going to win this race. Wow. Well, I think all of the... I do think for a lot of the reasons that you gave that that is... It is a great opportunity for her to do so. But I have one name that I think is going to make it very difficult. And this person hasn't run a marathon yet. Her name is Meseret Defar. She's a former world record holder. This is true. Former uh, world champion at, at, at the 5 and the 10. Um, someone who we didn't mention in our greatest of all time on the women's side, but... For any astute listeners, they probably could have called us out for that one. Nobody quite did, but she is. She could be argued to be among. She's certainly among the best of all time. Um, it will be her debut, and mostly the Ethiopians don't screw up their debuts. They usually do pretty good. So I want Amy Hastings Craig to win, but I think that no matter what it, ha I do think that no matter what happens, she's going to take risks that are bigger than she would normally in a in a tactical race because she wants to run fast. Um, if she's gone to Tokyo, they all have full assurances that they're going to make the race fast for her. And so I think that even if she gets sec, if Amy gets second or third and she runs 220 or under 220 or even 222, 223, we will be, we will be, it will be a great, great showing for her. But I just don't think she's going to be able to beat Mesret Defar. I think 
Defar will just ride whatever she has to ride, and she'll have the wheels at the end. I know it's pretty bold to call a, deb a debutante a, a a a winner at a world at a world major, but I don't think this is your average debutante. So agree with you, and I think you're right in that she's the main threat. Yeah, and so if I think if Amy gets beaten, it's probably by Defar, and that will. That's okay. That will be something to be proud of. That will be okay. <laughs> that will be something to be proud of, especially <laughs> if she ends up along the way getting a five or six minute PR. So, but I'm actually really excited to see Amy in a race. You know, the World Championship race is just—it's just a race. There's no value in running fast, and I think Amy can run really fast. I just don't think that she's been in the right circumstances to have that happen. So, I'm just super excited to see how quick we can run, and that's what I'll be paying attention to when I wake up on. That morning, I'm going to be like, okay, what's going on here? What happened? You know? Yep. So hopefully all of our listeners are checking that out. So check Amy's result in Tokyo. On the men's side, really the big name to talk about is Wilson Kipp saying he is going for a world record. They're going to have pace setters there Again. To, to help him <laughs> achieve that. He has held the world record, but has ceded that to Dennis Cometo, but still has improved upon his time since that world record running low 203s. He's up against a field of other East Africans that are four, four or so of them have run in the 204 range. No, no other 203 athletes in the field. As I look at the field, it's, it's kind of like Tiger Woods in the heyday against, against you know, a PGA tournament field. It's Kip saying or the field. And Correct. The the betting odds might be pretty damn even. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't think there's many other names to talk about. I think he's. It's a question of is he going to be able to sniff the world record? Does he finish? If he doesn't stay on world record pace, and if he finishes, I think he's going to get the win here. And but that's a real question because at some point he may just bag it if he's not there like he did you know, in Berlin. Yeah, I know he bagged it in Berlin, but I think that that was more along the lines of who he was racing against. And he just could tell that even though he was supposedly he was cold or whatever other facile excuse that they gave for why he stepped off that day. Um, I think Kip saying is angry, frustrated and wants a big win. And I think he's going to go for it big. The prediction for me is whether he gets the world record or not. I think he's going to get the win almost assuredly. I don't know that he'll get the world record. I think it'll be um, – I mean, they're going to have plenty of pacer. They're going to have plenty of pacing power out there to give it to him. I think he's hungry for it. And if he does, what happens if he breaks the world record, Chris? Do we now bring him back in the conversation of the best marathoner? I mean, because that's something that that uh, the current our current – favorite Kipchoge has not done yet so yeah it's a question you'd have to ask yeah so I'm I'm I definitely think that Wilson Kipsang is going to win I'm going to say no he doesn't get the world record but I think it'll be close and I think we'll be I think it'll be an exciting thing to watch and I think we'll all be on the seat of our be on the edge of our chairs and really rooting for him and I think he's a real champion and I look forward to him racing really well because I want him to be in the mix when they get into big races when he gets into big races against uh, against Kipchoge, just more yeah. bodies for to go against him. Yep. I tend to agree with your assessment. Gets the win, no world record, finishes somewhere in the 203 range, has a solid result, and makes us continue to keep him in the conversation of is he one of the best or the best if he breaks the world record at some point of all time. Because, look, winning the Tokyo Marathon, it's a major marathon. That's a big deal, apart from the world record. So that would deserve legitimate credit on its own. 
so there you go. Those are our intro topics. So lots to cover there. Check out the Tokyo results when you wake up on Sunday morning or see if you can stream them from the in the wee hours if you're that interested. But lots of interesting thing there, and we're definitely rooting for Amy Hastings Craig to have a big result. All right, let's talk our topic, Steve. And this came to us for a variety of reasons. But it's something that's always kind of circling around us as two coaches who have lots of athletes in our purview. We can't necessarily know as much as Jerry Schumacher knows about the (laughs) 20 or so athletes in his world that he's spending literally every day with all the time. And, you know, we're seeing our folks a couple times a week. And if that sometimes and while we are coaches, we don't necessarily know everything that's going on in someone's life. And there are moments when something happens where as a coach, you think, man, if I just knew that piece of information, then I could have helped or I could have helped prevent an injury or whatever it may be. So we wanted to talk about this, not only for that reason, but also because we have self-coached athletes that are emailing us and saying, Hey, what you're talking about on the podcast is really helpful. You know, how can I be better at bringing myself along? Even if I can't access you guys. So We wanted to kind of cover this topic to talk about as an athlete, whether you're self-coached or not, how do you manage your training so that you're thinking about all the right things and that you're taking full ownership of the whole process? Because as I said at the top, you're the only person that has all the information. And as a result, you have to manage it accordingly. And it starts with that point I mentioned, which is ownership and taking full responsibility for as I said, you're the only one that has all the information. So you have to know how to use that information. You have a coach as a guide, maybe, or if you don't, you have to even play that role too. kind of put your coach hat on, but you have to balance all of this and know that whether you have a coach or not, ultimately the results are on you. Absolutely. And that's a lot of responsibility, but it's also exciting responsibility to have. And I know some of our listeners, um, those who are self coached and maybe have opportunities to be coached by other coaches are probably pretty good at this. They probably already understand some of these things. They, they take it as inherent. Um, but I, I bet that most, I would say that's the, that's not the norm though, Chris. I think most people aren't going to really recognize this and they're not going to see it as for what it is. They'll recognize challenges they have and problems they have maybe being the fruit of not taking ownership, but I'm not sure they're actually going to see this because it's a really, hard thing to see and um but i do think it's so important as important for our coached athletes and in fact this is one of the episodes i'll probably ask all of my athletes that i coach to go back and listen to and say listen to the things that we're talking about here because it's crucial and if you haven't taken care of these things let's talk through them so that you are capable of doing it but i can't do it for you yeah, and to be clear, we're not abdicating our roles here no. or, or trying to push stuff off onto our athletes. It's more about trying to get the best results. And we talk often between us, Steve, about running as a craft mm-hmm. and developing mastery. I think he even talked about it on the last podcast with Kevin in episode 61 about how we're trying to develop mastery in our athletes. And we're trying to encourage you through what we're going to talk about today to think of yourself as an apprentice of sorts who's trying to become a master of your craft. And in this case, running is the craft. 
which means that you need to take ownership and responsibility of knowing all the pieces of what it means to be a master running craftsman. You know, Chris, my, uh, I've just I brought to mind one of my favorite quotes from a mentor of mine, Bev Kearney, who said, a coach cannot create or destroy. They can only enhance or detract. And that's really important um, to know. And that's very true uh, that no matter what, you are going to be held responsible for these things because it's going to come play in your results. And um, this doesn't mean you don't talk to your coach about things, but it's more along the lines of, Accept what you need to accept so that your coach is more capable and more ready to help you to enhance what you're capable of doing. Well, the other kind of corollary point is is bringing this idea of not being a victim to circumstances or things around you. It's whatever happens on race day is ultimately your responsibility. And yeah, there may be mitigating circumstances that reasons for why things don't happen, but ultimately it's up to you to assimilate lessons from all of those experiences in training and on race day and get that result. Absolutely. Radical acceptance of your responsibility as a central player in whether or not you hit your goal. Absolutely. Okay. So we, we're going to kind of step through this and unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how, <laughs> no. how, how people look at it, Steve, we got to start with beating a little bit of a drum, you know, that we keep beating, but it's so important. And they've heard this from us many times, but they're going to hear it again because, and especially since we've done the purpose podcast, the two, yes, it's only crystallized our belief in that step of, Having a purpose, articulating on paper, sharing it, refining it, and really crystallizing why you're doing this, why you're seeking certain goals. Because if you're not willing to take that step, why are you doing this at all? Exactly, Chris. And, you know, it's as we as we have talked about it many, many times, it still is the most important thing that you can do for your running. And uh, to all of those out there who are self-coached, this becomes even more essential because, as I've said many times, when you get to the most critical and crucial portions of the race where you need to execute, whether it's in a marathon, a half marathon, a 5K or 10K, you're going to come to that moment of truth and you're going to have to answer and go for what you want. And if you don't have a purpose statement, if you don't know why you're doing it, it's going to be exceedingly difficult to get over that hump so yeah let's not go too much further down there chris but it is important to be said number one and most important step to taking responsibility for yourself as an athlete is to have a purpose yeah and i had a conversation yesterday with one of my athletes a one-on-one conversation and, and the comment to me from this athlete was i'm not ready to share it i've written stuff down but i'm not ready to share it and I didn't want to be pushy, right? so I chose not to be in this situation. But my message to her was share it sooner rather than later because you're never going to be happy with it 
on paper, or at least if you're already scared about sharing it, it's you're not going to suddenly just be comfortable. Yeah, the only the only real thing there, Chris, is that person should it should only be a fine tuning or development because you've got it down and you're not willing to share it. Hopefully, it's just because you're trying to get it fine tuned and fixed. Workshop that with your coach. Yeah, but but you're going to have to share it. So sooner there's better than later and I get it we we understand the vulnerability and it's I'm sure in the same situation I would have done exactly what you did Chris is just defer and then make a date to share it <laughs> yeah, yeah I will be pushing but gently <laughs> with with this athlete but anyway don't be afraid to get it down and share it so start with that step one and there's a couple of other things from a macro level that you need to to figure out in order to have a global picture, a roadmap, so to speak, of where you're going as an athlete. This you can do with the input of a coach. If you don't have a coach, then you can do it independently of that. But purpose is one thing. Two others to mention as we get into this. Second will be having a goal, translating, and maybe that comes in coordination with developing the purpose is making sure you have a crystal clear goal. And we've talked about goal setting in this podcast, so we don't need to go, again, belaboring that point. But it's important to know what you're trying to accomplish the other thing I said to the athlete in this conversation was I said, what do you want? Because, you know, in the past, our conversations have been about training towards a specific marathon time. But I think she's already exceeded that really in training. And so she still needs to answer that question. What do you want? Because if you're an athlete who's managing your own training or has a coach, if you don't know the destination where you're trying to get to, then there's no point really in doing this either. Just like if you don't know your purpose, there's no point. So pick the goal. Yeah, you know, this in conjunction with purpose, I, d- I just remember my experience of coaching collegiate athletes and post-collegiate athletes and the athletes who had a purpose and who had a goal. It made my job so much easier as a coach to be able to direct them and to motivate them in the way that I needed to. If I didn't have those two things, it's like stumbling around in the dark. I can only imagine an athlete that might be self-coached would be in a real big pickle if they hadn't gone through these things. So you've got to have a goal, preferably a long-term goal with some short-term way stations. We'll talk about that in just a little bit a little bit more in a little bit. But you've got to have that goal, big or small, and in conjunction with your purpose, it creates the first and initial steps to being prepared to take full responsibility for yourself as an athlete and your results. Yep. So criticize your goal and purpose. Then you got to make a plan, sort of the high-level roadmap. We talked in episode 54 about planning your macro cycles, and that's a part of it. But I also think an athlete, as a part of this, especially if you're self-coach, needs to think about what are the fundamentals Right. What are the key pieces that you want to put together in your training? Or if you're a coached athlete, make sure that you understand with your coach, what are the fundamentals of that coach's philosophy so that you know when when you have questions, what to go back to. You know, I think of this, you know, if you're a religious person, the Ten Commandments maybe is an example. Or if you're a judge in the U.S., you go back to the Constitution or to the law when it comes to making decisions about judgments that might be coming, you kind of go back to first principles and say, okay, given what I believe in fundamentally, what 
did I do in this situation? That's important to understand. And I think as a coached athlete, as importantly, it allows you to be start to become a master of your craft. You understand why you're doing what you're doing. So talk Steve about what do you think is included there in that question of understanding the fundamentals of what you do? So you're looking for a comprehensive, complete, a comprehensive programming. By, by comprehensive, I mean it needs to under, you need to understand what the energy systems are that your body is going to be using in the running in the races that you're going to be doing. And you need to become a student of them. You need to figure out how, what volume is and why volume benefits you, why volume might need to be less. So understanding that we can tell you that miles matter, but, that, but you've got to understand what miles is for you. We've talked about, Chris, finding a sweet spot for people who are looking at their weekly mileage um, or how they play their mileage out over time. And so... That is really, I've said to so many people, I don't care how many miles a week you run, just as long as you can continue to do the workload that you need to and hold that mileage. We want it to be high, but for some people it'll be 100 miles a week. For some people it'll be 35, 40 miles a week. But it's understanding the fundamentals of volume, basically intensity, which is really going to follow down four different pathways. It's going to be some speed and economy, which, Chris, at some point in time, we probably really should do a podcast on what that means for folks. But it's stuff that's faster than your VO2. So basically 3K or faster work. Um, It needs to be heavy in some VO2 work, which is getting that aerobic engine as strong as possible through intensive workouts that fit a variety of different paces um, but are really between 3K and half marathon pace. Um, I mean, between 3K and 10K pace. And then they want to work on their threshold, which is their aerobic work, anaerobic threshold, their aerobic threshold, somewhere in that basically 10K pace all the way to marathon pace. And then then they really need to be focused, they really need to be able to be, one of the other fundamentals is is race specific work. So late in many cycles that we write, Chris, most of our folks are working on what they're going to be racing or what their command performance is late in the cycle and they're working on race specific work. So there's really four there's two things. What's your volume, what's your intensity, and understanding what intensity means from four diff- in those four different categories. And that's that's a kind of a dumbing down of it, Chris, but it's not that much dumbing down. It read those fundamentals and understanding where they are and what they mean. Every athlete should know what I when you or I say threshold, what that means, or be able to make an argument for what it means one way or another. And so, as we talked about, you need to you've got to get an understanding of that and know and know that you're getting all of those different systems involved in your overall plan. So your plan has to be strong in the fundamentals, understanding what the work you're doing is for and why you're doing it. I remember when I first trained for marathons, it was in the year 2000, just after I graduated from college and I'd pulled a program online and basically was following it blindly. Ended up with a stress fracture (laughs) as a result (laughs) because I didn't understand. I didn't understand what I was doing and why. I didn't understand how the pieces fit together. I was doing everything too hard because I thought I had to, to, I had to run faster to get faster. Right. So there was a lay, there was many layers of issues with that, but 
a lot of it came to down to the fact there's probably nothing wrong with the program I was following. It was just that I didn't understand how to apply it because I didn't understand the fundamentals of the program. And as a result, I got hurt. And we don't want that from a self-coach athlete. And we certainly don't want it from an athlete that's training with us or with any other coach because unless you understand why you're doing what you're doing, you're going to make mistakes. And they're, you're right. They're not going to implement it correctly. They're pro- even if I give them on the whiteboard the exact session as written. So here's an example, Chris. We had our athletes, um, a variety of our athletes, do a workout we call the Monster, which is a, a hard VO2 max workout. It's a 3K, then a 2K, then a 2K, and then three 1Ks. And that workout, everybody asked me, wait, I get recovery? I'm pretty renowned for not giving too much recovery. And not only did I get recovery, I gave three to four minutes, which is a huge amount of time. People were standing around, picking their noses, not knowing what to do. And yet, and so I, I wonder, and I only had one or two people say, why are we getting so much recovery? And not that I'm berating my team rogue athletes. I think many of them knew what we were doing and why we were doing it. But I do know there were some out there that didn't know. Because somebody asked me, like, why do I get so much recovery? I said, I need to make sure that you hit this next repetition on time. And someone who's self-coached, who sees that workout, might decide that they had more flexible. What, what do they have to work? Do they need to work the recovery or do they need to work this, the, the, the actual interval? And by knowing and understanding what the fundamentals are of the workout, you'll be able to make critical and crucial decisions. So somebody asked me, can I do less recovery? I think they might they made it seem like they were ready to go, but it may be that they had to go somewhere, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But I said, sure. If you're able, Did you hit the last rep on tight pace? And do you feel recovered and recuperated? Do you think you'll hit the next one on pace? And if the answer is yes, you can do less recovery. I'm just ensuring that we get enough. Um, you know, so it's... Those are fundamentals. That's the basics of what a program is, and it's pretty easy to it's pretty easy to learn. It's not that complicated. And and then as you kind of understand the basic principles, the the next sort of piece is to look at it both from a short term and a long term perspective. We talked about the long term episode fifty four planning macro cycles in eighteen, maybe even twenty four month intervals. It's critical to make sure you're working all the systems. We had one of our podcast training athletes make a comment this week that that episode blew her mind that she would ever consider training <laughs> as a marathoner for something besides marathons. She said she'd run a half, I think, yeah. right? or and one or two halves. So so it was sort of like, whoa, I, I need to do 5K, 10K work in order to put it together to run a bare marathon? And absolutely do. So you want to think about how it all fits together over a 12 to 24-month cycle and then also, of course, build your short-term cycle for a given block with a command performance and some three- to five-month window out from where you are today. And you want to make sure that all that stuff fits together. Not that once you put it on paper, you have to change it or not change it and just leave it static because it's important to adapt and flex as you go. But you need to be able to at least know what the vision is. For me, as an incidental point, it also helps me keep my eye on the prize. You know, for example... I just ran a big race in Houston. That was kind of my interim peak. And I know now we've got a big one in December, CIM. So now I've got 11 months to prepare for another peak race. And we've got different pieces that we're going to fit into those 11 months, which we probably need to talk about at some point. <laughs> but I also know that I don't need to be sharp for a little while. And so as I'm making decisions right now, especially coming off of a marathon about how to flex my training, I have huge flexibility because 
what's more important now is that I'm consistent and I'm rebuilding. And so this week, tweaked my calf a little bit. It wasn't quite feeling the way I wanted it to on Monday. Took Monday off, ended up taking Tuesday off, and took a couple days and not a big deal. I didn't need that work because my big next big peak is in 11 months. More importantly, as I get back healthy, then it, it's only two days and not two weeks, which I was able to jump back in Wednesday and Thursday and run, and I'm, I'm feeling good. So knowing how any given week fits into the overall picture is so important to making individual week-to-week decisions. Yeah, it's just having all of the... It's like making a decision, having all of the crucial variables in play. And I think that's what happens to many athletes is that they make critical and crucial decisions without having looking at the long-term, short-term, um, and not understanding the why and the when of what their training is. It's sort of encapsulated all in um, running blind. And those self-coached athletes, this is a surefire. If you don't follow those these, these pointers that we're giving you right now, there's, there's no way you're going to improve. Um, no matter how fast you are, you need to know what your plan is and how you're going to execute it and how you're going to adjust. And so, or you're not going to be successful. There's no way around it. And we are arguing now that it, it is just as important for our, for coached athletes to also understand that. And let me give you a piece of advice. There's never, ever been a situation where I have not been excited to tell my athlete why we're doing a workout. Now, I may not be excited about the timing of when they might <laughs> ask me that question, as in two minutes before the workout starts. I'll usually say, shut up and run at this point, but let's talk about that later. But a coach worth their salt will always be able to have an answer for you and be willing to share that answer with you. And if they're not, I really do think you need to look at getting a different coach because that probably means they don't understand what they're doing. Not to jump on that entire other topic, yeah, but well, I think it's a great way. Coached, you need to make sure you understand exactly why you're doing what you're doing every day. Because if you don't get it, then how can you make decisions about how to modify it, how to adjust when you feel bad, how to skip it if you need to? All those things matter, right? So understand the purpose, understand how it all fits together, short-term and long-term. And related to that, as we talked about on that microcycle episode, you need to think about your 1%, the extras you do, also in the context of short-term and long-term work. I constantly remind my athletes that, hey, you can't add three things in a training cycle extras to do. You can't add lifting and stretching <laughs> and more time with the foam roller and, you know, the fact you're going to go to yoga more or whatever. You can't add all those things. You got to or and work on diet. You know, it's like everybody wants to throw the kitchen sink in every macro cycle and just say, if I just did all 10 things I'm supposed to do right, it's going to be awesome, right? Like, no, but it's not realistic. We can't balance all those things. So pick one thing maybe two max per cycle to focus on in terms of extras and don't ask more than that and don't incorporate more than that until you can nail those things. I always tell people a few things done consistently is way more powerful than a lot of things done inconsistently. Yeah. We don't know the variables then Chris, as you're, it's like ma- baking a cake and you know, you don't, you're just grabbing things that are in your, uh, grabbing things that are in your, in your, pantry and just throwing it in and tossing it in the oven you you need to know when you added a weight to strength training regimen that that strength training regimen is giving you the benefits that you think it is and believe me most of these things that we're talking about with the one percent one percent sounds like a little but it's usually pretty novel and new 
and difficult to implement. And so it's going to take some time and energy and some focus. I'll give you an example. I have an athlete who just recently started lifting weights. She's been lifting weights for about, started lifting weights in about three or four weeks. And she was wise in not coming to me before three or four weeks because I would have said, just keep doing it no matter what. But she came to me and said, I'm so sore and my workouts are suffering. I don't understand why my workouts are suffering. And that's, for a coach, that's always a very scary place. You don't want your athletes' workouts to suffer. And she was pretty darn sure I was going to tell her to stop lifting weights. She was almost almost 100% sure because her mouth dropped open when I told her, go another week or two weeks and then check back in with me. A week and a half later, Chris, I asked her, so how's it going? She said, I feel great. Everything's just fantastic. I'm just fine. It just took her four to five weeks to adapt. Yep. It's a brand new thing. So these one percenters, they take time and energy and focus and don't just toss it all in and expect to get a great result. You need to take the time and discipline to figure it all out and to implement it correctly. Yep. So all we're talking about here is in addition to having a purpose and goal is have a plan, a purpose and a goal. Understand the big picture of how it all fits together so that you're ready to do the work when it's time and understand how it all fits. Now, the next piece, that's sort of like the overarching blueprint, so to speak, and understanding that blueprint is really about learning your craft. As we talked about it kind of in the intro here is you've got to become, to the extent that you can, expert, an expert on a lot of different things. Not that you have to be to our level or to your coach's level or to a coach's level if you're a self-coach athlete. It's just that you need to start getting educated, and this is going to be happening simultaneous to all the work that you're doing, and it's going to build over time. But make sure you're investing time and energy in understanding the facts about training. Become a student of the sport and all the pieces that come with that. Read books. Read articles. Listen to us. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's things you can do to pick up bits and pieces, and it's not all going to come at once, and it's not a course you take at university and you learn everything in a semester and you're good it's a lifelong pursuit i'm still learning you're still learning we we're just all shared still each learning. other book we just gave each yeah, other we books. Just passed books. <laughs> yeah, we just passed books we just passed we're books, still learning so we're still learning <laughs> but the point is you want to start to become uh, an understanding of the craft of running you steve kind of broke this down into five categories of areas that people can think about getting smart so i'm gonna let you lay that out and then we can talk about it sure so the first one is it really is the scariest one, and I think for so many people they don't. It's just, it's just. It, I know I'm not trained in the hard sciences, so I know it was super scary for me um, when I was first learning the ropes about how to be an effective coach, how to coach myself, which I, which I did for a long time, and then how to, how to coach other people. And that's exercise science. I've called it exercise science for dummies. You kind of got to look at it like. You, we, you don't know it all. And those dummies, that series of dummies books um, doesn't ask anybody to become, an, to become an absolute expert in whatever it is that they're doing. It's just saying, let's give you the basic cursory knowledge necessary to be effective. And almost, and I call that being smart. And so you're working on learning how to be smart about what workouts you did, I, workouts are doing and what workouts mean. As I talked about in the last section about about strong fundamentals it's understanding what intensities are and how they work and what they do with your body and chris there's a lot of really good books out there in this and nearly every book on run training will have some cursory or basic description 
of the physiology that occurs when someone trains for running. Um, some of them are really in-depth, like Tim Noakes' book, which is fantastic, but he's got like 18 chapters. and The lore of running. The lore of running, and he's got like 18 chapters. By the way, if I plugged one book ever and only could plug one book ever about running, this one has everything in it. It has history, has science, it has training, it has so much great stuff. But it's hard to read because he's an exercise physiologist. But there's others. If you read Jack Daniels, he's another phys- exercise physiologist. The running formula. He's running formula. He'll have it in there. There's training. Advanced marathoning. Peter yeah. Pitzinger. Everybody will have some basic. Just pick one up and read it and then work through it. Think, okay, what does this mean? What does the... what is VO2 mean? It is basically how well your oxygen can use, how well your body can use oxygen while you're running. And once you, you can then do the little bit, rewrite that story three or four different ways until you're able to give it out and then you'll understand it. And it doesn't take a whole lot. And the one thing that's really nice about exercise science, Chris, is the one thing that's not changing very much. (laughs) It's, 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 there's not, there's not many brand new things coming out when when we talk about exercise science. So there's not a whole lot of staying up on this information. Once you get the real basics down, you're set. So the, so I think that's the first thing you need to do. The next thing I think you need to do is you need to learn the craft of strength training. I call it strength training for weaklings. You need to get strong. And you need to understand what that is. Whether you want to do that through action of going in and learning proactively from a personal trainer or from a, or from a, um, an, a uh, physical therapist or someone else, get to know what strength training is, what lifts are, what the value of different lifts are. Now, this is an area that can be confusing because there's so many different viewpoints on it. But basically, Chris, what we would suggest is you want to be doing things that make you carry your body and use your body weight because you're way, always going to be running with your body weight being used. This is an area where people will argue. Some people will say high, high intensity, low, vo- low weight. Other people will say low weight, high in volume. Really, there's great arguments for both sides of that equation. And so what we're not asking, we're not asking you to figure it all out on one thing. And we're going to have at least one podcast or two podcasts coming up soon with information about this topic. But you need to get to know what strength training is. Jay Dishry's books. Jay Dishry's books are fantastic. My number one recommendation there. His first book book is great for the fundamentals. I actually have been reading his second book. just came out a couple of months ago. Um, It's fantastic and it's called running rewired um and it is really really good i am really enjoying it and it's got some very practical applications lots of pictures and diagrams and he tells you exercises people are going to tell you you need to do this you don't need to do it and here's why which is also great because then you can have a conversation with your local crossfit gym about why this might be better or that might be better and 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 then be ready because it's your responsibility folks let's go back to the overall topic it's your responsibility to do this stuff right even if you've got a personal trainer showing you how to do the exercises you still have to implement it within your workout and within your whole cycle um so keep going yeah so that's strength training strength training the next one is dynamic flexibility this is learning to be flexible Flexibility is, you know, science out there says stretching does not benefit you. I've never met a person who didn't benefit from stretching, at least some. Um, Again, another topic that can have lots of different viewpoints and a lot of different ways of looking at it. But you want to move your body in a wide variety of different 
Mobility, mobility too, is, is another word. Yeah. Correct. Mobility. And you can do this through drills. You can do it through active stretching. You can do it through static stretching. There's a whole lot of stuff. This is the area that something new is coming out nearly every week, and it's hard to stay up on. But again, the fundamentals are crucial and critical. Again, Jay Dishri's books yep. are very good for this topic because they are... Um, Again, very easy. He gives you diagrams and shows you how to do these things. So that's really, really important. I think a lot of people don't. A lot of people love it when they say, don't stretch. But we're believers in stretching. We just think that there's right ways to stretch. Yeah, and that it's more important for some than others. Correct. Um, the fourth part of your craft that you need to learn, um, this is Chris, this is one that you are absolutely you already we don't need to cover it too much because you went on a rampage about this a couple of weeks ago uh, but it's um the recovery tools i call it recovery tools for dodgers those are those folks who do not do it because they just dodge it they just sort of stay away from it um you want to be supple and um this is an area knowing why you're i always find it so interesting we've got people who come here early in the morning chris they grab one of the f rollers and they just start crunching down on their body not <laughs> just or they just sit there and do nothing and just roll it back and forth mm -hmm. i'm like don't do anything you don't know what you're doing yeah. so don't do it like yep. that you you're more likely to hurt yourself by doing stupid shit than you are by not doing anything at all but it's a really well, important thing to learn and here's the thing is it's like we have so little time to do everything we need to do so don't waste time i see so <laughs> many people wasting time foam rolling in a way that doesn't work or doing strength work that they don't know why they're doing it. They're just like, yeah, somebody somebody told me to do Jane Fonda, so I'm doing them. No, it's like everything you do has a point and should have a point and purpose and fit into the overall plan. And I think if you don't know how to properly use a trigger point tool or a foam roller, then you're missing out. So to me, this one's really simple. Go to tptherapy.com <laughs> or their YouTube channel, Trigger Point Therapy, they have amazing videos to kind of roll on all sorts of things. Watch a video, get a grid $40 foam roller for them or a cheaper one from somewhere else and just follow what they're doing in the video for some body part that you have issues with and you're going to find your mind blown. Because it's counterintuitive. People yeah, it's, people who think they're doing it right are probably not if they yeah, haven't gone there to exactly. look at that. And I've... I'm one... I can raise my hand and say I've been doing it wrong in certain ways at times and I've learned new ways. So... Go just watch a video on their YouTube channel or on their website, tptherapy.com, and your mind will be blown, and you'll be able to do less foam rolling than you're doing now, but be more effective with the time you spend on it. Yeah, and Chris, our final one is one that really we've, we're, we're really excited about. We continue to work on, and we continue to play with. We've given people lots of examples, and it's mental training techniques. I say for the faint of heart, and by that I mean I think the people – in my experience, who are not working on mental training techniques, they're scared. And they're, they're afraid of, of being vulnerable or they're afraid of stretching outside their boundaries or they're afraid of what they might find out. I, it, I, it, there's a myriad of different things. But to me, when I look at them and they say, oh, I don't really need that, I just think they're chicken. I, don't, I think they, I call this being brave. It's being willing to take your running to the very next level by learning the craft of what your mind and body complex is doing and how to how to do this in the very best way and not ignoring what we believe is probably the most critical and essential part of the body to running. Well, this is where we get to plug an upcoming guest. We've got Alex Hutchinson coming on. He's been a previous guest, just released his book, Endure, The Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. 
and it talks about this mind-body connection. So that's one to certainly check out just as a way to understand the science behind the mind-body connection and the science of physical limits versus mental limits. Super fascinating. And we're going to have Alex on in a couple of episodes to talk about his book. You recently, Steve, got a question from a podcast listener about other mental training books. Obviously, you can go back and listen to our series, but this person was looking for other resources as well. What are some mental training books you recommend? Well, he was specifically asking about warrior stuff, which is a yep. little bit on the woo-woo side. So I gave him some suggestions that Carlos Castaneda's books, um, especially the first three, are fantastic. They are a little weird and a little woo-woo. The first one is a anthropological sketch, uh, but he very quickly gets into some um, weird and funky stuff. But, you know, those books, Chris, to me are so essential because they're talking mostly about this thing we're talking about now, which is radical personal responsibility. It was the first place I ever learned that not only are you responsible for the things you do, but you're responsible for every single thing that happens to you. That's because you have to react to every single thing that happens to you and you have to act based on those things. So therefore you're responsible for them. If I walk out this onto the street and I get hit by a car, sure, I didn't, and I, and I was crossing at the, under the crosswalk at the right time, and everything else, I might not be legally responsible for getting hit by a car, but I am certainly going to be responsible for all the rehabilitation that it takes to get back from getting hit by a car. And so Carlos was the first, that's the first place I learned about that. A fantastic book. Um, other suggested books that I have, there's one that I call, um, it is, it is one of the, the best books I can suggest. It's really, I think it might be out of print, or it's, but you can find copies of it. It's called The Warrior's Craft. Um, it is a fantastic book. Um, blank, the author's name is Robert Spencer, I believe. Um, that's a fantastic book. It really encapsulates a lot of the topics and conversations that Chris and I have been talking about. It's sort of the framework that we used to build this mental training construct because you and I, we kind of had to come from the middle of nowhere with this. We had built it. We knew a lot of these things, but we didn't know how to put them into play. And I used many of the concepts that are in there um, that were really, really helpful. Um, some other books that others I now have found very, very valuable. There's a book called Mind Gym, M-I-N-D-G-Y-M, that I know has been very effective for some people. Um, gosh, there's like... How Bad Do You Want It, Matt Fitzgerald. That's a great one. Is another yep. good one. Lots of resources out there. And what we're saying here is not that you have to... You don't have to become a PhD in running information and topics, but be curious, be hungry for knowledge on the topic, and seek out ways to get more information. Doesn't mean you have to always be reading a book about it, but but read some books about it. Find information. And then when you find something that's interesting to you, dig more. Go deeper. And just be curious is really what we're saying. If you're listening to this podcast, you're already doing a big part of that by hearing us talk about a lot of these things. But take some time to invest in your own time and other resources to get that information as well. So we talked about sort of the big picture, understanding the big picture with the plan, the goal, the purpose. We kind of talked about learning the craft in the second piece. Now I want to talk about applying and managing the process once you're in it. Now we talked at the beginning about ownership and owning the process. But because you as an athlete are the only one that knows all the pieces, it's important to manage all the little elements. And what does that mean? The first thing it means is that you need other resources in your camp. I often say it takes a village to get a marathon PR because 
in any given moment <laughs> for me as an athlete getting to Houston and getting that PR meant having you and a coach, having three medical providers that I regularly consult, having a massage therapist. That All three I, who don't necessarily agree with each other. Right. You were using divergent ones, too, though you had to keep right. your head straight about. But I was managing yes. the information from them in a way that was beneficial for me, getting what I needed done. And knowing where to go to which, you know, when to go to which one about certain issues. So, three different medical providers, a massage therapist that I was seeing every three to four weeks. And then, of course, you've got teammates that are contributing, family members that are contributing their energy. It takes a village to run a marathon PR, so or a half marathon PR, or a 10K PR. So, you need to first make sure you have your resources down, and it starts with those medical providers and massage therapists. Absolutely. I mean, your PT, your chiropractor or your doctor, depending on which you see or both, um, your massage therapist, you, you lined it out there. They are crucial and critical to your success. Um, and, you know, Chris, I think that this is, this is a gratuitous plug to our podcast training group because we've got a podcast training group. It's been pretty amazing to see the value of this idea of athletic and athlete's responsibility watching listening to our the on, we have a facebook page that is private for that group that um they've we've got about 15 or 20 really really active participants on there who are sharing information discussing workouts showing their specific splits talking about their statements of purpose Chris, it's a pretty amazing community. But when I talk, when we talk this topic that we're talking about, all of these things are being workshopped really in a in a pretty particular way in that experience. And I know that's happening with Team Rogue on our long run on our long runs and our easy on the warm ups. Athletes are checking with each other. What's going on? Why did this happen? What do you think? Why why do you think Steve gave us that workout? Or why did Chris decide that we were going to change this route a little bit? But what that community aspect that workshopping that the, it's it's as educational and as essential to this entire process so being a member or being a part of a bigger group or at least a group of people you can share things with even if they're not there this is the great thing about our podcast group chris is they're they're from how many different countries five do different countries. five different countries and they're sharing with each other and getting incredible information and it's um it's just it's it's such an essential part of being a fully well-rounded distance runner Yes, and we will, just to plug it, because we might as well, since you started, is we will have another podcast group starting in May, restarting in May, and our intent with that is to incorporate race distances and training protocols for all the way from 5K, 10K, all the way up to marathon and half marathon as well. So we're hoping to expand the scope of that group so other people can be a part of it. And that's a resource to use, but in your hometowns, you, you got to find the experts as it relates to medical providers, massage therapists who know runners, who know running injuries. You want to be discerning about those choices because it's super important. Unfortunately, it's not enough to just go to an orthopedic surgeon about a running issue because most of them aren't trained to deal with soft tissue related injuries. They're, deal, they're trained to deal with tears and breaks and ACL you know shreds. And so... You want somebody who understands running, particularly oftentimes that could be a chiropractor or a physical therapist. Could also be a doctor. You know, we've had orthopedists we've worked with in the past that really, really get it. But you want to make sure they get it. Talk to people, get recommendations, 
go to a local running store, say, who do you guys partner with from a medical standpoint and from a massage standpoint? So that's one thing is get your team around you and then give yourself the opportunity to try that out. Try out those experiences and go to them proactively because then it starts coming down to then managing your team, <laughs> right? It's like, obviously, you got to know when to engage your coach. We'll talk about that in a second. But you also got to know when to go to your physical therapist and or your massage therapist. And this, to me, is one of the most important things about managing your training is understanding when a pain is more than soreness and is something that could lead to injury. And fortunately or unfortunately, it's something that takes time to understand and build. You have to kind of develop expertise in this. And the longer you train, the more you'll know your body, the more you'll know when aches and pains are something more to be worried about. But early on, I would say err on the conservative side. But a general rule of thumb is, and I've shared this with our podcast group, is that if, if pain is more is a is more than a three on a one to ten scale, or the pain increases when you run and doesn't decrease, because most soreness or issues that are going to work themselves out will decrease when you run. If the pain increases when you run, or the pain is greater than a three on a one to ten scale, it's time to go see somebody, especially if it's lingered more than a few days. So, proactively, go see some good ahead of it. I did that this week as I was talking about with the issue I had, went to my physical therapist and we got things worked out and I'm on a path to, to fix the calf issue I was dealing with, but couldn't have done it without them. They also helped me triage and say, okay, yeah, you can run tomorrow. That's cool. It's not a tear. It's nothing that's going to get worse, but this is what you need to do to make sure the pain goes away. So we triaged all that together. But as I said to them, it's like, I'm learning to do prehab and not rehab. Prehab is way better yes. than rehab. Usually it's shorter, yeah, less it's painful. Yeah, not six weeks or yeah. eight weeks. <laughs> and it comes with oftentimes you being able to continue running. So proactively know when to go to those providers. Sometimes you're, or oftentimes your coach will help you make that decision too if you have one. So check in with them, let them know. I can't tell you how frustrated I get when somebody comes to me and says, I didn't run this week. And I say, why not? And they say, well, this ex, you know, this injury's got me to where I can't run. And and then I ask the question, well, how long has it been bothering you? <laughs> and they tell me three or four weeks, wow. right, to the point where it became such an issue that they can't now do their thing. So, and as we know, that's not the real issue. There's another issue. <laughs> you want to stay ahead of it, but Chris, one thing I've said this on the podcast before, but I think it's really important. I just had this conversation with an athlete I coach is. There are also those who just freak out and, you know, there's those who ignore and then those who just stop because they're like completely freaked out. Um, if you can follow Chris's suggestion that it not be beyond a three or a four and it continues to get a little bit better as you're running, you can go, you should wait three to four days before you, before you just decide that you're going to stop running completely because a lot of times these things are just little tweaks or they're just little things that can get worked out pretty quickly and that may just need a couple more, a couple of days to work themselves through. But if you've gone more than three or four days and you are still in pain and it is above a three to four, you need to go see a medical professional as soon as possible because it will not get better on its own if it doesn't within three to four days. If it's going to get better, it's going to happen in that amount of time. And if it doesn't, you have a real significant problem that probably have a significant problem that needs to get addressed as soon as possible. Yeah. And as a part of that, 
you, you also make sure you're getting to the root cause, right? A lot of us, and sometimes medical providers slip into this where they treat the symptoms, but they don't deal with the root cause. So as a part of your treatment, as a part of your effort to seek help in a given issue and pain is to understand why it's happening, not just to make it better, not just to make the pain go away, but why did the pain happen? What do I need to do to fix it? And what do I need to do to prevent it from happening again? For me, I have chronic issues with my left side because I have an ankle that isn't as mobile as it should be due to a lot of sprains when I was playing soccer that have kind of caused it to be tighter than it should be. And so kind of that's something I have to stay ahead of. And there's certain things that I I know I have to now do proactively to keep that ankle moving appropriately so that other injuries don't happen. And so that's what you want to do is ask yourself, not only how do I solve this initial pain, but how do I get to the root cause? What's the core problem? And how do I make sure it doesn't happen again by proactively addressing it? So that's sort of the injury side. But then there's also managing your training, right, Steve? Coach is involved, but we're not running every step with you. So what are your tips on an athlete managing their training? And let me maybe just start with the basic question of what do you do if you're in a workout and it's not going well and maybe your coach isn't there or you're having a run and it's not going well? What do you do? How do you make that decision? What are the variables you should be thinking about if you're managing that decision the right way? Well, hopefully you've come at it with context. (laughs) This is a really crucial point, Chris. So many people, when they run into a tough workout or a tough situation, they uh, what I do with them frequently is just give them, ask them to give me context for why that might be happening. Uh, sleep, stress, family issues, blah blah blah. Well, an athlete that is, but it is amazing how, really, how really quickly I can get that handled pretty quick because if it's. I didn't go to bed until 2 o'clock last night, and I'm here, and it's 5.30 in the morning. I'm going to be like, this workout's over, right? <laughs> so it's like, go home. That's go home. We should, probably shouldn't have come. You should have rolled over, but that's okay. I appreciate your your focus and your drive to get this done, but you're, you're putting yourself in a tough spot. <coughs> um, um, so context is really crucial to understanding where they're at. And then the other things that I like to tell people when these things happen is, is the uh, workout's objective really to hit pace a specific pace or a variety of specific paces or is the workout designed to get the work done and usually you can tell you know the coach certainly knows but most athletes you should know today if i say we're doing x number of repeats at 10k pace with a big recovery you should know that if i'm not hitting the paces then the workout's not doing what it's supposed to be doing and so it's time to throw the towel in but Chris, frequently when we do stuff like marathon goal pace work, gosh, it's absolutely critical if you're not hitting the paces to continue to do the work because we're trying to prep you for the kinds of th- rigors that the race will require later on in the race, and you're probably not going to run specifically your marathon goal pace from start to finish in the marathon. So being ready for bad patches. So there's a lot of that is what's the workout's planned result? What are we trying to physiologically get done? And that'll tell you whether that day is... It's important to do it or not important to do it. Um, one thing I do really like to tell my athletes, that if your heart's not in it and it just seems like you just don't feel like it, 
as I said to somebody in our podcast group yesterday, you were really sweet to them and you gave them a lot of reasons why things might have been. And I finally just said, suck it up, buttercup. Because if they can't suck it up at that point, then they know they really have a problem, you know? And for that athlete, they'll, she'll figure out whether she has a much bigger issue. She's pretty sure what the antecedents are, what preceded it, why happened, what the context is. But it still didn't help her in that moment of deciding. You said it's okay that you made that decision. And I think it was okay that she made the decision she made. But she can't make that decision again if she wants to stay on a clear path for her success in running because that would mean that she wouldn't do any workouts. So sometimes it is just push through and then see what happened. Like, what was the result? And this is a key thing is that you're not really going to fuck it up. You're not going to really screw it up. You're not going to fail. You're just going to learn more about yourself and learn more about this. And Chris, that's the real exciting part of this entire discussion we're having about taking responsibility is it's a journey. It's a, it's a story you're telling in that moment, and you're trying to figure out the best way to tell it. And guess what? I, we like to say every one of our athletes is a nano of one. We can, we can write basic programs for 100 people, but it still takes one person to implement it and to get it right for that one person. And without them doing that, without them wrestling with these things, they never know. Well, and there's no perfect decisions really either. I mean, that's a mythology that every decision, every little step, every pace and every interval matters. And it just doesn't. Yeah, the overall picture matters. But as we've talked about many times in terms of training principles, consistency is the most important thing. So what you do on one day for one interval has no ramifications to your long-term trajectory. It's about putting the work together over a series of months, years, and maybe even decades for some athletes. So don't put so much pressure on yourself for every little decision. It's like you can let go of that a little bit. But at the same time, use the resources you have. If you have a coach, check in with them. Hey, this is what I'm feeling. What do you think? They know you. They've worked with you. They're going to give you a sense. Sometimes for me, I'll just say, let's do one more. You know, it's almost always. Let's what do I one say. more, yep. and then we'll see. And check in with me after the one more. And if it's still not good, we we call it. And if it sometimes you never know that one more is things turn around. So you know, so don't put so much pressure on every little decision, and also recognize that you're you're learning as you go, and it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to to make a misstep or to make one decision, look back on it, and say, you know, I should have gone the other way. And then next time, do it the other way. Do I have time to give a specific example of that? Give it. So I. uh I coach an AM team road group and a PM team road group. The workout that they did that they did this this week was exactly the same workout. It's actually the same workout that our podcast group did. For the AM group, there was no no discussion about how we were going to implement the workout. It was the full volume, 3K, 2K, 2K, 1K, 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 and the recovery shut up, and then I dealt with the athletes one-on-one when they needed adjustments. For my PM group, Chris, exact same workout, same recovery, same everything. What I said to them is, we're going to start with the 3K and the two 2Ks, and then we're going to see where the workout goes from there and see what happens. Both groups finished the entire workout, and the only ones that didn't were the people I individually adjusted for. But what I did is I approached it differently with the two groups, and it's not just because one is more serious than the other, which is really not true. They're both very, very serious. It was just that I could tell that at that moment, both those groups needed those things. And that what we're really asking our athletes to do right now is to do that for themselves and to trust it because really did it matter? They did the same workout, but we just approached it two different ways. So sometimes it's just telling the story a little bit different to get you to where you need to go. 
But again, Chris, as this whole topic has been about, if you don't know where you're going, then you don't know the story you want to tell, and it makes it impossible to be able to determine the best choices to make. Yep. The last thing I want to put here in this sort of managing the process point is that communication is super critical. Communication with your coach, communication with your team of resources around you. And I think for self-coached athletes, it's important to create some sort of communication dialogue with a like-minded group of people in your community that might also be training. Find a friend, find a subgroup that you can follow the same plan with or maybe just go to lunch or have happy hour together and say, hey, tell me about your training. But find a sounding board or sounding boards that you can use as a way to test your own thinking. When I was training a solo kind of right after college, one of my good friends, my best man at my wedding and a good friend from college and I were doing our training together. We were training for the same races, oftentimes training together, but there were times in that period where he lived in a different city but we would do similar things and I, w- you know, we'd call each other up and be like, How, how'd that go? You know, how are you feeling? Or we would use each other as a sounding board for what we should do and the decisions that we make. And so I think as a part of taking responsibility, whether you're a self-coached athlete or whether you even have a coach, it's important to find other athletes that are like-minded, that are doing similar things. You can bounce things off of. And when these things happen where you're not sure what you should have done, you can go to them and say, Hey, this is what I did. What do you think of that? And get <laughs> feedback. Right. Yep. And, or if, you know, you're feeling, you know, terrible on a day. They can help you sort through, hey, sh- what do you think? Should I do this? And they can relate with their own experiences. So find that sounding board. I think it's as important as any of this other stuff is having a community, even if you're not necessarily training side by side with them, to share thoughts, share ideas, and get feedback. Okay, let's bring it all together, Steve. <laughs> when we When we exchange notes on this topic... Your last point was, okay, once we get through all of that as an athlete, you got to then bring all the weapons to battle. This is so been using this one forever. So bring it home with bringing all the weapons to battle. So uh, this came about because I would have athletes that I coached. Um, when I coached at the collegiate level, I always, I didn't do this. I didn't, my athletes did not know what workout they were doing before they came. I didn't give them a macro cycle. I didn't give them a plan. Primarily because they were... There were, you know, college-age girls who didn't want to know the plan. They didn't want to be active in that. But what that required, Chris, was that they would con- they they didn't they I mean they didn't know if they needed their long run shoes or if they needed their racing flats or if they needed their spikes or if they needed um, a specific some specific watch or so I would say you need to bring all of your weapons to battle. That means every pair of shoes you have you should have in a place. You put them in your locker. Have them all. But the reason I said that, Chris, was not because I wanted necessarily all that flexibility in terms of determining what they, that I, the flexibility of just deciding on a whim what workouts we were going to do, but more along the lines that I wanted them to know that when they showed up to the workout, that they had everything they could possibly need. And I can't tell our listeners how important that is, that this process of being personally responsible is bringing all your weapons to battle. It's taking care that you know the reasons why you're doing the workouts, that you've got a plan, that you've got all these different pieces that we talked about. All of them get wrapped up in they're all tools for you to go into battle because you don't know what you're going to need to use in any given day. Even if you think you know what you're going to have to use, things change. And the most effective athlete is the flexible athlete. And I'm not meaning in terms of 
muscle flexibility. I'm talking the flexibility to turn on a dime, to be nimble, and to get done what needs to get done. I'm, a, I'm one of the areas that we've talked about this, Chris, is our podcast group. They're train, people are training incredibly cold temperatures and incredibly tough places. And they're watching their ability to become more and more nimble and to make adjustments on the fly and to ask us a little less and a little less and a little less as we go is a really heartening and exciting part of this process because they don't need us for every single step along the way. We become less and less important and the athlete and their community becomes more and more important. But unless they understand what they're doing and they have this, all of this in play, they have all their weapons that they've brought to battle, they would otherwise find themselves, you know, with a, with a, with an, with a bow and arrow when they're going up against a man, a, a tank, and it, that's not a real effective, effective way to do battle. One of my favorite things to watch on at Rogue on a Saturday before long runs, if I get there a little bit early, is to watch people come in. With their bags full <laughs> of stuff, their running bag clearly. It's they, a lot of people have ba- their running so bags, and and they they sit down and most of them come in. It's almost like you would make a meal you've always made in in your kitchen. You know where everything is. You don't have to think about it. You know the recipe. You don't have to m- look at anything. And so I like watching that because we, people walk in. They've got their bag. They've got their routine. They know this place like the back of their hand. They're sitting down. They're doing their thing. They're checking their phone to look at the weather. They're making decisions on what exactly they're going to wear. They've set the garment out on the front porch <laughs> to make yeah, sure it gets, to make it sure gets it's synced, up. synced up. It's <laughs> like they're sitting there putting on their armor, so to speak, and and they have everything they could possibly need for a Saturday long run. And when they get done, they've got their recovery stuff. They've got their dry clothes. They've got their towel. They've got their stick that, you know, they use their personal rolling device and they've got everything ready to go. So I love just seeing that because it's just to me just sets the table for what we're about to do on that day, which is to go get some serious work done. And those people that treat it that way, I think, get the most out of their day because there's no surprises. There's no hiccups they're never without body glide because they've got it in their bag they're they're never without their extra gels because they've got them stacked in their bag you know and and prepared for a few weeks worth instead of just one (laughs) and so anyway it's just it's it's interesting to think about that and it's the same as it relates to this topic was it's not just about those physical things but it's also about the mental things and understanding how all the pieces fit together bring it all to bear you have all these resources you have a big goal why not use them all have yes. them all at your disposal. So with that, we should wrap it up. We've gone way too long in this <laughs> episode, but I thought we might break it up into two. But we've just gotten to the point where we're like, oh well, our listeners, our core listeners, will hey, listen, and those they're who don't, with us or they're not exactly. <laughs> so we don't apologize for running long yeah. on this one. We don't have a we don't have a sponsor <laughs> to apologize to. So here we go. But <laughs> we appreciate you listening, and hopefully, you picked up some things to learn to incorporate into your routine and. In the show notes, I'm going to put a little bit of an outline of what we talked about here today and also list some of the book references that we had so you can get more educated on some of these topics and become a master of your craft, this running craft. So good luck to everyone in that journey as you go individually. So thanks, as always, for listening. This has been Episode 62 of the Running Rogue Podcast. You can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.